All right. Well, good evening, Praxis. It's good to be here with you tonight to open God's word with you and to close out this important series on the attributes of God in the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn in them to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. We'll be looking at verses six to eight in Exodus 34. And in case you haven't been with us this past month or so, we've been going through a short study on God in the Old Testament. First, Pastor Allen, he went over the holiness of God. We looked at Isaiah six. Then last week he covered the faithfulness of God. And this week we're closing out our series by discussing the love of God in the Old Testament. And you can see that on your notes there. And for some of you, you might be scratching your head thinking the love of God in the Old Testament, right? That doesn't seem right. And that's because when many of us think of the Bible, we can think that the two Testaments are very different. On the one hand, when we think about the Old Testament, we think that this is the part of the story that's filled with judgment. It's filled with wrath and plagues and different wars. We can also think of God in the Old Testament kind of as this boogeyman, this cold, wrathful and strict kind of warden who's devoid of any warmth or of any love. On the other hand, when we think of the New Testament, we have warm, fuzzy feelings. It's the good part of the story. It's that part of the story where we see the love of God. We see the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ and we see God's mercy on display. But the belief that the God of the Old Testament is completely wrathful and completely unloving while the Christian God of the New Testament is only gracious and only loving without any judgment, or the belief that the Old Testament law and Judaism, they're all about cold legalism, while Christianity is all about warm and soft grace is completely false. Instead, when we re-examine the Old Testament, we actually see that God has always been understood as gracious and unconditional in his love especially in the Old Testament. And it is precisely on the basis of God's love, promises of salvation, and yes, even his law in the Old Testament that the New Testament writers who were all Jews, including Jesus, can even speak of the love of God displayed in its fullest sense in Jesus Christ, who is God's Jewish Messiah and the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises of redemption and forgiveness. And I cannot tell you how many times someone has come up to me and asked me about how we as Christians should deal with this apparent issue, or how many times I've heard an offhanded comment about God's seemingly unloving character in the Old Testament or how the Israelites and the Jews, they didn't actually care about God. They didn't love God. They didn't care about loving their neighbor, but all they cared about was just austere, oppressive obedience to the law 
because they didn't want to get hit by the hammer. They didn't want to be struck by thunder and lightning. And the danger of this is that it creates a false and wrong caricature of God, his law, and his people in the Old Testament. And it affects our understanding of who God is, and it affects our worship. Maybe someone has challenged you with this apparent dilemma. Maybe it was an unbeliever. Maybe it was even a fellow Christian. Maybe you yourself have struggled with this question. So I hope at the end of this message, we can walk away knowing and being comforted by the fact that the Old Testament overwhelmingly depicts God as a loving and gracious God. And that this is the same loving and gracious God that we see displayed in the New Testament. And so that's where we have our key idea tonight. It's that God's love is central and persistent. It's a, sorry, it's a central and persistent theme of the Old Testament. And we see this expressed in no greater way and in his unconditional love and mercy toward his people, Israel. And so in order to see this, we're going to examine this passage and we're going to look at three key things. First, we're going to look at God's intrinsic love. Second, we're going to look at God's love for his people. And third, we're going to look at Moses' response. So let me read our passage for us, Exodus chapter 34, verses six to eight. The Lord passed before him, this is Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. So point number one, God's intrinsic love, looking at verse six. So when we talk about God's intrinsic love, we are talking about this, or this attribute and characteristic that belongs to God, which is part of his very nature. In other words, we're talking about God, who he is in and of himself, who he is ontologically in his very essence. And Exodus 34 perhaps gives us the best picture of who God is as a loving God and how his love is essential to who he is. And this really sets the foundation for the entire Old Testament and the entire biblical story moving forward. As some of you may recall in the story, this is right after the golden calf incidents where the people of Israel, they had turned their back on God to worship an idol. And soon after God had saved them, or this is after God had saved them from Egypt, and he was about to destroy the people as a just punishment for their sin. But Moses, he pleads for mercy and God shows them mercy. God would have been just to destroy them, yet he spares them in the story. 
And the reason God relents from destroying the people is found in Exodus 32, verse 13. There Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and he pleads with God to remember the unconditional everlasting covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this was the covenant that God would be their God and bring salvation blessing to the world through them. And after all this happens, Moses asks God if he can see his glory. And God says, no man can see him and live, but he promises to let Moses see his back. So Moses, he rises in the morning to meet God on Mount Sinai. And this is where we come to our scene. This is where we come to our story. Exodus 34, six, it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so there are a few things that are worth noting here. First is that we read several attributes that are ascribed to God. And what's interesting is that God ascribes these attributes to himself. And notice that at the beginning of verse six, it says, the Lord proclaimed. So not Moses, not the people of Israel, not us, but God. God is saying, if you have ever wondered who I am, if you ever wondered what I am like, if you ever wanted to know who I am, I'm about to tell you. In other words, he's getting to decide what we get to say about who he is. He's setting the terms here. And the second thing worth noting is what God actually declares about himself. In other words, the adjectives or the modifiers God attaches to himself. He declares that he is merciful, he's gracious, slow to anger. In other words, he's patient. Then he says he is abounding in steadfast love. This word steadfast love, it might sound familiar to you. In Hebrew, it's chesed, chesed. And it means faithfulness or loyalty. Specifically, it's God's loyalty and his unwavering, unfaltering, unfailing and persistent love for his people. And notice that God says that he's not only a God of steadfast love, but that he is a God abounding in steadfast love. In other words, God is not just a little bit loving, but he says he overflows with love. Moreover, God does not just possess this attribute of steadfast love and loyalty partially, right? As if he's 50% power, right? 30% holiness, 15% omniscience, right? And maybe just a little bit of love. Maybe just sprinkle some love in there, maybe 5%. No, God is saying that he fully 100% possesses all of these amazing attributes, including love. Because if he didn't, he wouldn't be that great, right? He wouldn't be God. Another way to think about this idea of abounding has to do with richness and abundance. In other words, if we were to quantify the amount of steadfast love that God has, 
I mean, if we were to convert this into terms of, say, dollars, right, he's not someone with just $10 in his bank account. No, he's a trillionaire, right? He's got more than Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, the entire list of billionaires combined. And more than any of these billionaires, God in the Old Testament is the greatest philanthropist because he pours out the riches of his love upon people who don't deserve it. And at this point you might be saying, okay, you know, this is great and all, right? God says he's merciful. He says he's slow to anger. He says he's abounding in steadfast love. But is there any proof for this? Do we just have to take his word for it? Or does he actually demonstrate this? And so that brings us to point number two, God's love for his people, God's love for his people. And under that you have letter A, which is his forgiveness and his mercy. So in verse seven, God goes on to say that he is a God keeping steadfast love for thousands. Then he says, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty. And I wanna stop right there. So first God says he keeps steadfast love for thousands, but then he says he forgives people's sin. And so maybe at this point in the biblical storyline, right, this is early, right, in the early stages of Israel's history. This is early in our Bibles. Things are kind of just starting and getting going. And so this might not carry a lot of weight for us when we read these words. These words can maybe even seem a little empty. But when we get to the end of the Old Testament, and when we get to the end of Israel's history, those words become profound. And to see that, I think it's helpful for us to look at Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. So if you would turn there with me. Nehemiah chapter 9 is extremely important in the Bible because it essentially recounts the history of Israel and it provides this great detail on God's relationship with his people. So Nehemiah chapter nine, starting in verse six. So this is after the people, they've come back from captivity in Babylon. This is at the, as I mentioned, at the end of Israel's history where they've gone through cycles and cycles of sin and repentance, sin and repentance. And it culminated in the final sin of being sent to Babylon, or sorry, the the final sin of turning away from God, committing idolatry, committing a social uh, injustice for hundreds of years. And God said that this would end in being sent away, sent into captivity into Babylon for 70 years but God in his love and his mercy, as we'll look at in this recounting of their history, he brought them back as he said he would, and he restored them. And so when they come back, the nation is happy, but at the same time, there's this great sense of grief and mourning because they look back on their history and they look at how they have constantly turned away from God. So there's this bittersweet feeling of God's faithfulness, his love and his mercy, but at the same time, the people sin. And so they want to turn away from that history 
and they want to commit themselves to following and serving God. And so this is just a beautiful picture of all of that. So starting in verse six, these are the Levites talking on behalf of the people. They say, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and you made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. This is what we talked about last week, right? What Alan talked about that God had loved Abraham unconditionally and chosen him and that through Abraham, there would be blessing land and seed and through Abraham would come salvation to the entire world. And it's based on this promise that God keeps his covenants, keeps his love set on Israel. And this is the foundation of God's relationship with them moving forward. And then in verse nine, they continue to say, and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the Red Sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their uh, pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servants. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their, mit, for their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. They go on to say, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. So just to stop right there, in the history of Israel, right? God gives them these promises to Abraham that he's going to love him and his seed, that he's going to bring them into the land and bless them. And God delivers on this promise, right? He brings them out of slavery in Egypt after 400 years. He provides for them in the wilderness miraculously, and he eventually brings them to the land. But in the midst of all this, after God has done all of these amazing things and showed that he is faithful to his promises and provided for them, we see that the nation turns away from God. They sin against him. But then as we continue reading in verse 17, they say that even though this happened, they say, you are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Where did we see this? Where do we see this? We see this in our text, 
right? The text that I just read, and it becomes kind of this creedal statement for the nation. This becomes the hope of the nation that even though they sin, just as they did right before Exodus 34 and the golden calf incident, even though they do this, the truth is, and this is the truth they confess, that God is a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It is almost word for word from what we read in Exodus 34. And this is exactly what they say. Right in verse 18, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And this continues, they continue to sin. Verse 19, continue to say that in your great mercies, you, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. He continues to lead them in verse 20, you gave your good spirit to instruct them you didn't withhold your manna from their mouth. Verse 21, 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. Verse 22, and you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their, their hands with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. They captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. And then here we go again, verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. This is talking about the time of the judges where the cycle goes on and on. So God delivers them right after they sin and are given into the hands of their enemies. And then in verse 28, but after they had rest, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. In verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And so why do I go through 
that entire story? Why do I go through all those verses in Nehemiah? Because I hope we can see the cycle that happens over and over and over and over and over in Israel's history. We see how God promises blessing to them and he delivers on that promise and they turn away from him and they see the folly of their sin and they suffer from it and they turn to God and cry to him. And instead of rightfully turning away from them after all the times that he's provided for them and love them and they just turn away from him, instead of turning from them, God accepts them. God loves them because of the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where nothing that they do can thwart those promises and that unconditional promise and that unconditional love that God has set on them. So now turning back to our text in Exodus. So we just saw God's love, right? In the Old Testament manifested in his forgiveness in his mercy toward his people when they sin. And so now in the second part of verse seven, we see God's love in his justice and his care through the law. So that's point number B or letter B. So God continues to say, after he said that he's, a God who keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He goes on to say that although this is true, he will not by any means clear the guilty. He says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And at first glance, this can be a difficult verse to comprehend, right? Most agree. Uh, that this verse doesn't mean children are to be punished for their ancestors' sins. We see this clearly in Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, where a man is not to be killed or punished for his son's sin, or a son is not to be punished for his father's sin. Instead, people are held accountable for their own sins that they commit. So instead, some when they read this verse and try to interpret it, they've proposed that we should understand God's statement to mean that sin's effects are so powerful that they affect future generations. In other words, not only do the sins of a father directly harm his children, but those practices of sins and tendencies are typically passed down to be repeated in subsequent generations. And so God says he will not leave the guilty in the current or the future generation unpunished. But either way, this verse can still seem a bit confusing. Some of you might be thinking, well, I thought you said that we're going to argue that God in the Old Testament is a loving God, right? If anything, this text seems to contradict that. If anything, this just proves that God is a wrathful and, and judgmental God in the Old Testament. Because on the one hand in verse six, in the beginning of verse seven, right? We read, right? This theme and this idea that stresses the mercy and forgiveness of God. 
On the other hand, this latter part of verse seven seems to emphasize punishment. So where does this part of verse seven fit into the love of God? When we look at this verse in light of the rest of the Old Testament, it actually stands in perfect harmony with God's love. And it actually establishes God's love. And that is because it highlights the just nature of God. And the fact that God is just and punishes evil according to his law is a good thing in which we should find comfort. For example, we all know if a judge lets a rapist go or a murderer go without punishment, we would be outraged. We would never dare to say that that was loving. And the same can be said of God. If God did not punish people for the sinful acts they commit against him and against others, that would not make God loving. It would actually make him evil. And his judgment of lawbreaking and sin is precisely why he is loving. In other words, God's justice and love are directly related to one another. They are inseparable. We can even say that God's justice is an overflow or outworking of his love. And this truth that God's justice is an outworking of his love also helps us develop a proper understanding of God's law in the Old Testament. And I think this is helpful and much needed as we go through the book of Galatians on Sundays, because we might walk away after we read Galatians or after we hear sermons on Galatians, thinking that the law is evil, right? Thinking the law is oppressive and bad. At least we might walk away thinking Paul thinks so. But we see even in Paul's writing, right? He anticipates people are going to say this, that Paul is saying that the law is no longer valid, that the law is bad. And so in Romans six to eight, right? I'm just going on a little tangent here, right? He, he says, no, may it never be that I would understand or perceive the law to be bad or to be evil or oppressive, right? His entire argument in Romans six to eight is to combat that and to respond to that. But we still might walk away thinking that this is what Paul thinks, that this is what the New Testament teaches. And it can unintentionally paint a negative picture, a caricature of God, right? His law and the people in the Old Testament. And we see even Jesus, right? Have to uh, combat this false charge where he says, don't think I came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So we have to have a proper understanding of God's law and not think that it is bad or wrong. And because God is loving, as he has declared and demonstrates, as we have just seen, by necessity, everything that he commands corresponds to his loving character. In other words, God can only command laws that are loving. It would violate his very essence if he did otherwise. And my point is that the law will always be a reflection of the lawgiver, whether in the political realm, any human realm, whether in the divine sphere where 
God gives his law to his people, we all understand this. And we should thus be able to see in the law traces of God's goodness and love. For instance, numerous laws in the Old Testament, specifically in the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Pentateuch, it's called the Torah, sometimes called the law. That's what Torah means. It's in, uh, teaching or instruction. So many laws in this part of the Old Testament where the law is found prohibits certain things. Certain things like wrongful charging of interest. We see this in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Further, the book of Deuteronomy requires that debts be canceled every seven years. And it prohibits people from stripping all of their crops for profit. And what's the big deal about this? Well, it says that when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the immigrant, the orphan and the widow, so that Yahweh your God may bless you in all your doings. When you beat your olive trees, do not strip what is left. It will be left for the immigrant, the orphan and the widow. When you harvest the grapes of your vineyard, do not pick what is left. Leave it for the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And notice how those three people, right? These groups of people, the sojourner, so the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow, these were the people who, as you've probably heard before, are the lowest in society at that time, where they couldn't provide for themselves, where they didn't have food or a place to live. And so God, in the law, he makes provision for these people. And he commands the Israelites to make room for this, to care for them. In the 10 commandments, we read things like, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery. And Paul and Jesus both say that all of the commandments, all 600 of them in the Old Testament are summed up by this one commandment. And it's found in the Old Testament in Leviticus 19.18. You've probably heard of it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says this in Romans 13, verses nine to 10. And he also says that love is the fulfillment of the law. And there he's speaking of the Old Testament. In Exodus 23, we read this. You shall not bear a false report do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. So they're talking about social justice here, talking about in the courts, not to lie in your testimony to essentially wrongly convict, convict somebody. Goes on to say, and this is giving a bunch of different laws. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a, in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying, or sorry, lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. So here's the idea of loving your enemies. Exactly what we see Jesus teach in the New Testament, not a new idea that he's introducing. This was introduced in the Old Testament. Continues to say in Exodus 23, you shall not take a bribe for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. 
You shall not oppress a stranger or an immigrant since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger for you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. And so the points I'm trying to make here and bring up about the law is that when people break these laws that are given by God, people aren't only rebelling against God and deserve punishment for that, although they do, but these laws are also meant to protect and to care for people for people who are made in God's image. So God, he's not loving despite his provision of the law and his punishment of people when they break it. Instead, God is loving precisely because he gives the law and punishes people when they break it. So when we see God judging sin in the Old Testament, on the one hand, yes, it should cause us to fear, but it should also comfort us knowing that we have a God who acts justly and lovingly enough to punish wrongdoing and to give laws that protect us from each other in a sense and cause us to love and care for one another. And even when people sin in the Old Testament, and it happens a lot, right? God is gracious to forgive those who seek his mercy. And that's what the sacrificial system was for. Even the sacrificial system that we read about in the book of Leviticus, it was designed and intended for God's people to maintain fellowship with him. And I've heard people say, right? The Old Testament is depressing, right? The law seems oppressive. God seems too wrathful, but through the sacrificial system, God makes provision for forgiveness, for cleansing and atonement so people can draw near to him and be in his presence and to know him intimately. More importantly, the Levitical system, it opens up this way to be in God's presence and it points to the future day when we will be in his presence forevermore in heaven. And this is how God's people have always understood things about God. It's how they've always understood the Old Testament and the law. I mean, just read Psalm 1. Read Psalm 1 and the delight of the psalmist when he talks about the law, how the law leads him into paths of flourishing and blessing. Psalm 119 when the psalmist talks about the, I mean, it's the longest chapter in the entire Bible. And it's about God's word and God's law. But when he talks about it, he connects it directly to God and how God as the law giver is good and loving and caring. And the law is a reflection of that. And that's how the psalmist in both of these Psalms can rejoice and exalt in God. Read Psalm 51, right? David repenting and not only repenting and coming to God after he has sinned, but saying he knows God is a merciful and gracious God. And that's why he can go to God with confidence. And I'd encourage you even more to read a text that I'm sure you've never read. It's called the prayer of Manasseh, the prayer of Manasseh. It's not in the Bible, but it is written by a Jew around the time of Paul and Jesus. 
And I want you to read that because it's exactly like Psalm 51, where we see Jews during the time of Paul and Jesus, not with some cold legalistic attitude towards God, but with genuine repentance and passion and love and a warm devotion toward God. And even in the New Testament, right? We think about James who calls the law perfect. He calls it the law of liberty. And he says, blessed, happy is the one who does it. And overall, right, the Jews, again, they saw the Torah, the instruction, right? The first five books of the law, they saw it as wholly relational before God. They saw this as relational before the God who loved and redeemed them out of Egypt and who established himself as their God who did so. The law was never meant to be cold and obeyed out of guilt or fear, but out of love. Obedience was always the response of God's people to his free electing grace that he first promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is what one rabbi writes. He's talking about the giving of the law. He says, at Mount Sinai, when God gave the law, he appeared to them as an old man full of mercy. Not a grumpy man, not a mean, angry old man or a dictator, but this rabbi says that for them, God appeared to them as a God and a man full of mercy. So the law was always about maintaining one's relationship with God, never to establish it. And this reminds me of a, a story. Um, there's a, a well-known scholar uh, in New Testament studies. Um, he is a professor at a divinity school, very uh, big and, and famous divinity school. And uh, before he became a Christian, he, well, I mean, he, he was born Jewish. He's Jewish ethnically, and uh, he grew up in a Jewish household. It was mostly secular, but he talks about when he was growing up um, and kind of observing the Jewish people around him, his, his parents, and um, when he would go to funerals, for example, and he would hear rabbis speak and, and teach on the law, and they would teach about God. And he said it was interesting because there was a huge contrast between his experience and his upbringing and what he saw and observed versus when he became a Christian, he would read Christian scholarship, specifically Christian scholarship and what Christians would say about Jewish people during the time of Jesus, or when they would talk about the rabbis after the time of Jesus and Paul, or even ancient Israel. And the big discrepancy for him that kind of bugged him and even offended him a little bit as a Jewish person was that these Christian scholars he noticed would write about Jewish people and, and Judaism in a way that was very negative. Negative in the sense where Judaism and Israelites, they were depicted as kind of these cold, strict people, right? That didn't actually love God, right? Didn't actually obey God because they loved him or were passionate about following him. And on the other hand, they would depict Christianity as the spiritual, warm religion, right? That was free and all about grace. But he said when he would recall memories of when he would be in the synagogue, when he would see rabbis, when he would see his parents singing in, in church or for them synagogue, he would see smiles on their faces. 
right? When the rabbi would teach on the law, when he would teach on the Old Testament, he felt warmth, he felt love. And he could see it in the people and he could feel it when they would worship and talk about God. And again, for them, this was because God was the one who had made promises to them and he didn't forsake them and he never has. And he redeemed them. So in other words, in light of what God reveals about himself in the Old Testament and in the law, it was always meant to be about grace. And the proper response to when we see God in the Old Testament, it's always been to walk away with reverent hearts and not just reverent hearts, but worshipful hearts, hearts that adore God. And this is what Moses' response is in verse eight. It says, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. So notice Moses' response here, right? It doesn't say he bowed down, but that he bowed down quickly, right? This was a knee jerk reaction for him. This was instinct for him. He doesn't ask questions. He doesn't dispute. He just sees God in his glory, in his mercy, in his justice, in his love, and he worships. Praxis, may that be our response to the loving and just God of both the Old Testament and the new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call you our Heavenly Father. We look back to the Old Testament and see that even this idea of you being a father who cares for his children, a tender father, it comes from the Old Testament. Indeed, you first called yourself father when you redeemed the people of Israel. And that continued when your son, Jesus Christ, was born, who lived the perfect life, who died the perfect death, and who rose from the dead so that we can become sons ourselves. And so we thank you that you are a loving heavenly father in the Old Testament and the new, that you do not change, that you have always been loving from the start, that you have always shown mercy and forgiveness and grace. And because of that, we can trust God that in our lives that you will continue to do so forever and ever, and that we will get to be in your presence and behold your glory forever and ever. Behold your majesty, your love, and your mercy. And so may that cause us to be like Moses, to bow down in awe, adoration, and worship. And we pray all these things in the name of your precious son. Amen.